0: Viva La France and Viva Max Verstappen after a very I'd say convincing win for him in Paul Ricard if you watch the first 19 laps of the race perhaps not the case but once Charles Leclerc another mistake from Charles Leclerc at Paul Ricard puts it in the wall on lap 19 and Max Verstappen gets a clear run to the finish from there so much disgust from Paul Ricard as Max Verstappen takes a 63 point lead to the hungara wing is the title fight truly over now plus we've got that we've got the hungarian grand prix and of course the retirement of sebastian vettel all coming up here on the armchair f1 podcast as ever drop the armchair f1 podcast a like and follow across social media listen to us across all major streaming platforms we are coming up to the summer break but there's still going to be plenty of content coming up throughout the next few weeks so take a listen to all of that As we come up as well towards nearly the one-year anniversary of the podcast as well when we get to this year's Belgian Grand Prix. Except this time we'll have hopefully covered an entire season by the end of the year. So plenty to look forward to indeed. But as we come to the summer break, of course, plenty of news from the F1 world. Plenty of news that we're going to be covering throughout the summer. But let's get going now on the biggest piece of news that we heard from earlier this week the retirement of Sebastian Vettel from Formula 1. The four-time world champion has announced that he'll be retiring from Aston Martin at the end of the year, saying that his priorities have changed from being solely focusing on racing and the commitment that that requires and taking time out of the sport to spend more time with his wife and his children and devote his time to being a father there. Of course, Vettel has made a lot of statements. There's been a lot of questions recently about whether he'll continue in Formula 1 Past this year, particularly linked to not just his more personal commitments to his family, but also a lot of his questioning on the environmental aspect of Formula One and his increased activism there and whether the role that Formula One has to play within that. And of course, on top of that, Aston Martin not necessarily producing the machinery that Vettel was hoping for when he moved to the team for the start of 2021, something that might have perhaps played on his mind. As he made this decision well joining me this week to cover that plus everything else in this week's episode Joe Spagnoli welcome back let's get going um Sebastian Vettel I guess first of your first thoughts on his retirement I wasn't entirely surprised but certainly quite a big story to hit the headlines over the last
1: week well it's buggered up our silly season episode <laughs> within a few weeks of it going up hasn't it um I think the the comments. I Pretty sure it was me. I think I said that I was I was expecting, I think it was far more likely that Sebastian Vettel would retire at the end of this year than Fernando Alonso, which is a complete pivot on what I said six months ago, how amazingly prescient that turned out to be. Uh, the initial take on it is Sebastian Vettel is 35 years of age even if his fitness was to decline, he's got at least four more years that he could have been in Formula 1 and could have been somewhat competitive relative to his, let's be honest, quite poor teammates. It says a lot more for me about Aston Martin and where they aren't going as to why he would retire rather than him himself. Um, I'm sure he'll... It's rare that I agree with Jeremy Clarkson tweets, but if Sebastian Vettel was a star in Formula 1, it's highly likely that he'll be an even brighter star out of it. But yeah, I, th- I think he knew at this point that he was never going to drive for a top team again. Aston Martin were not going to give him the car to compete on a competitive s- on the competitive side. It makes complete sense for him to retire now. Um, I just don't know whether he'd be going into another series or if he truly meant every word he said. Knowing Sebastian's personality, I actually believe it.
0: Well, it's interesting because there's been some talk already potentially of a move to Formula E, some into the World Rally Championship, some into um, World endurance potentially. Um, basically any racing series that you could put Sebastian Vettel in that has been discussed already, DTM, of course, based in Germany, one that would be closer to his family as well. Um, but it's, it's an interesting one, Vettel, because we've seen, especially since he's gone to Aston Martin, and you could argue perhaps he's been in more competitive machinery, we've seen a lot more from Sebastian Vettel off track as well. And in particular, two things. Obviously, we've already mentioned the environmental activism that's become a big part of a lot of what Sebastian Vettel talks about off track in relation to Formula One now, but an increasingly public dissatisfaction with um, the stewarding and with a lot of the race officiating, which of course culminated in Vettel walking out of driver's briefing uh, not too long ago. Um, Do you think some of this perhaps is playing a part in this? Of course, you've mentioned Aston Martin and the fact that machinery isn't giving him what he wants on track, but if there are certainly these dissatisfactions that he has perhaps off track as well, that in the end for vettel being involved in formula one is something that doesn't he doesn't feel he necessarily wants as much anymore
1: um unless there has been an absolutely massive culture shift behind the scenes which no amount of netflix scrutiny and twitter speculation could possibly identify i i don't lend too much credence to it i mean race directing and stewarding it's it's always a minor problem it's just been kind of put under the magnifying uh, under the magnifying lens, after Abu Dhabi and after Drive to Survive, so I don't, I don't think that would be. I can see why Sebastian would be annoyed about it, certainly in terms of the inconsistency, but I, I don't think that would be the kind of thing single-handedly strong enough to push him away from the sport he's been in for the best part of fifteen years now. Um, no, I think it, it's far more to do with other commitments and again, just how this Aston Martin project is not going anywhere anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is something that's unavoidable because certainly Aston Martin haven't been delivering on perhaps the promises that you'd have expected them to deliver on, certainly when Vettel joined the team after its rebranding from Racing Point in 2020, the fact it just won a race, the fact that it was a team that looked like it was going on the up and that potential's just not been delivered upon for Vettel going into 2021. Um, Looking beyond that, and I guess something else with Vettel as well, that he's always been a driver who's sort of shied away from a lot more of the social media aspect of the sport. Someone who doesn't necessarily, yes, has a very strong media presence, and we see that with his activism, for example, but certainly his social media presence, perhaps the more celebrity aspect of Formula One is something that's never been as motivating for Vettel. He always talks much more about his pure passion for racing rather than everything off the track as motivating him as well. Of course, we saw Sebastian Vettel got an Instagram account um, where literally just an hour before he made the announcement. And there was a lot of questions about whether he'd done that and whether perhaps this new Instagram presence is a way to continue a lot of the work he does off track and continue to have a profile with that if he's not going to be at a Grand Prix every weekend. So I guess sort of looking into that, Sebastian Vettel someone who doesn't necessarily have that off track profile very much focused on the racing. I guess that's something as well that leans into his decision to retire where he doesn't, where maybe if he's not so interested in the glitz and the glamour side of Formula One, especially coming with Netflix and social media as well, that it does really lend to itself being a pure racing decision.
1: I'd say so. He's certainly never been as on board and as entertaining on drive to survive as some of the other drivers have been. I especially remember the Ferrari episode in series three, which is one of my favourites. About um, the awful season they had in 2020, Seb just looked like he was kind of doing his job, saying what needed to be said, um, and kind of just moving on, not really caring. Uh, it's funny you say he's never been on social media. Cam, he literally joined Instagram. He started his Instagram account 24 hours ago. For well, God's no, that, sake.
0: That, that was the point. That was the yeah, point yeah, I it was it. making. It's I like know. he joins the Instagram account and then retires straight away. It's it's the strangest way to ever get on instagram i think i've ever seen in my life
1: it's also a worrying portent about the power and poison of social media that within a couple of hours of joining instagram he decided to retire from formula one so i'm (laughs) i'm as somebody who hates that app i'm going to blame instagram for his premature retirement or at least biologically premature retirement um yeah again not a huge amount more to be said i i suspect that that instagram is going to become a lot more uh, utilised after he finally leaves Mm. Formula 1 because his kind of communications on social media, I can't imagine Aston Martin would be too happy about the honesty.
0: Yeah, and I think think the one thing you can always say about Sebastian Vettel is that he's always been upfront and honest about his views of Formula 1. And certainly off track, he's going to have a considerable presence that even if he's not racing on track anymore, you're still going to be hearing from Sebastian Vettel. He's still going to be... A very influential figure in Formula One. And let's go on to that now. Let's go on to the legacy of Sebastian Vettel, because this is a, we can talk more about, um, I guess his achievements and where he ranks exactly amongst the greatest drivers. Cause I know this is a topic that is one of quite significant debate amongst the Formula One community, but I guess to focus on his legacy in Formula One, obviously one of the most successful drivers of all time, one of the most dominant eras driving the Adrian Newey-designed Red Bull cars between 2010 and 2013. Yes, many missed opportunities for Sebastian Vettel as well. Of course, the two years at Ferrari in 2017 and 2018, where he lost the championships there, potentially. And, of course, struggles against younger, new teammates that have come in, both Daniel Ricciardo at Red Bull and Charles Leclerc at Ferrari as well. But fundamentally, I think there's no doubt for Sebastian Vettel, a very successful driver on the track, and a really important voice for Formula One off the track as well. Is that, I think, the legacy that you take from Sebastian Vettel?
1: Legacy will take a long time for it to truly percolate. I don't think any of his off-track activism is going to have its full effect until a couple of years down the line, and definitely after his Formula One retirement. But as a driver, his uh, his attention to detail in terms of engineering and debriefs is pretty famous. Adrian Newey's talked very recently Um, about how his post-race debriefs would go on for hours, trying to extract every little bit of performance out of the car. He was instrumental in development as well. He was one of the, the, uh, not necessarily the architects, but one of the key implementers of the exhaust-blown diffuser technology that saw Red Bull absolutely dominate the 2011 season. Uh, So on that front, he's fantastic. And for me, he will define the late V8 era of Formula 1. It's just a shame that ever since the hybrids came in, nothing's really seemed to work out in the long run.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is certainly, I think, a point of disappointment for Sebastian Vettel because there is no doubt that on his day and in the right car, Sebastian Vettel was unbeatable. And you just have to look to... I always say to his performances in 2011 and 2013, especially those last nine races of 2013 when he won, went on that records equaling nine-race winning streak. I think there was a point, and I put this on Twitter, there was a point, it seems that every record in the book would be broken by Sebastian Vettel. That was just how dominant and just how good he was um, in these Red Bull cars. But I guess like the Mark Marquez era of MotoGP, of course, a very promising early career, but blighted by issues, perhaps not entirely of his own making later on in his career as well. And perhaps that potential we talk about to go on and break every record as we've seen Lewis Hamilton has got there first with almost every record as well of course, in arguably equally dominant Mercedes machinery in the hybrid era. So it's a really interesting legacy that Sebastian Vettel leaves behind. And you mentioned his off-track legacy as well. And I know there's been a lot of discussions about the role that Vettel should play off-track, whether he becomes a team principal, whether he gets involved in running a team, whether he gets involved perhaps in the governance of Formula 1, not just sort of on track, sort of governing action and governing the racing, but also potentially its future environmental activism. Of course, we know that F1 has been pioneering E10 fuels. We know for 2026, Formula One is looking to introduce fully sustainable fuels into Formula One. So I think without doubt, you mentioned that attention to detail that Vettel's had and that respect that he has amongst the engineers. And in many ways, that would make him such a crucial voice in the future governance of Formula One.
1: I certainly, uh, I certainly leaned more down that route than the team principal idea. I don't think to the the position of team principal these days, with the sheer amount of responsibilities that you have, the pressure you're constantly under, and the expectation of conforming to a certain ideal. I don't think Sebastian Vettel has anywhere near the voice in a Toto Wolff or Christian Horner position versus a governance position within Formula Formula One or surrounding it within the FIA or otherwise um i yeah I, I definitely think it's going to be more down that route and to be honest i think people would have expected that of him from his early ferrari days he was very outspoken um on cultural issues even then which at the time i remember thinking uh, you do know who you're driving for sebastian they're, they're not going to like that but fair play to him he stuck to his word for all this time i can't imagine him i can't imagine him as a team principal but I can definitely see him taking up a leadership position. I just don't think that the position of like head steward or race director that so many people pass around him, I just don't think that's enough for Sebastian Vettel. Hmm.
0: No, I can almost see him playing a sort of the Ross Braun-esque role in the future. I think that's both the respect that Vettel has within the F1 community, but also just the considerable knowledge that he's built up and the respect that he's gained from that, that he is someone who I think a lot of people would look to in terms of the future of Formula 1, especially in its sustainability as well. And and many more than so many other motorsports, Formula 1 has gone further in terms of looking at sustainability and how it can reduce its carbon footprint going forward, acknowledging, of course, that by the very nature of the sport, it's not the most environmentally friendly. So having someone like Sebastian Vettel, who's been one of the most outspoken and one of the most active on these issues in one of those positions I think would be very interesting indeed and show the priority that Formula 1 places on its environmental role going forward. Um, Vettel's legacy and, of course, his best moments we will be talking about in a future episode within the next couple of weeks. But let's stick now with 2023 and let's go to Aston Martin now. And I guess we've said already that Vettel retiring does seem like a bit of a vote of no confidence in the current Aston Martin project and there's all this disquiet behind the scenes at the moment the influence of Lauren Stroll what's going on in terms of the design of the car and whether everyone's on board with that project Vettel retiring certainly seems like the latest of a long list of calamities in that and perhaps not the death knell but certainly the biggest vote of no confidence in it yet.
1: Very hard to disagree. We've been hearing reports out of Team Silverstone, or reports about Team Silverstone all year about just how negative the atmosphere is, how horrible Lawrence Stroll is as, as an owner, how he just does not understand the culture of actually running a Formula One team and the unrealistic expectations that he's put on them. And just the lack of positive reinforcement throughout. None of those things gel particularly well with Sebastian Vettel. I, I can't see the issue being with the team principal Mike Kraken on the engineering side around Vettel it has to be the wider Aston Martin project and as I've said already where it isn't going relative to its fairly lofty expectations Um, if you want to get onto who the next driver is in terms of flat out confirmation cam I do not have a bloody clue I'd be happy to go through the options but I could not tell well, let's draw upon some of them quickly, because this is quite an interesting
0: list indeed. And I think there's there's a few names that have been touted around. So obviously, there's um, the many drivers who've sort of been linked to seats up and down the grid. So obviously, Oscar Piastri is one name that comes to many people's mind, linked with the seat to Williams. We talked about him as someone who could very easily be picked up by a lot of teams. Of course, the key point with Oscar Piastri, though, he is going to be a rookie next season coming into Formula 1. So if you're expecting him to come in and lead a team with Lance Stroll as his teammate, it's not exactly Piastri being in his rookie season. Despite the fact I'm sure it'd be pretty quick, is not necessarily the best option for that. There are options at other teams in the grid, perhaps Pierre Gasly, if this is his chance to get out of the Red Bull program and lead a team, this is an opportunity that's opened up for him. But is the is it going to be very much a move up the grid or a move potentially sideways or down? For Pierre Gasly, Daniel Ricciardo, similar questions there. Could this be his get-out-of-jail-free card out of McLaren? A chance for him to rebuild his reputation at another team? But again, is this a move sideways or down that's not going to benefit Ricciardo? Other names, of course, Nico Hulkenberg, the reserve drivers come up, reliable but not on the grid for some time. Nick de Vries, again, many of the issues associated with Piastri, but of course off the grid for even longer as well. So. There's a lot of names, though, that I think could come into this seat. I guess the big question, the big thing is, is that none of them stick out and certainly fill the mould in a way that Sebastian Vettel was certainly doing in that seat.
1: It's very different. See, if you applied all these names to a McLaren hypothetical seat or even a Williams or an Alfa Romeo, there seems to be less opposition to most of them. Aston Martin is just so culturally different and I suppose so culturally disappointing relative to the expectations that we put on them, that it's hard to see people going there. So the structure has been pretty clear, at least in the last couple of years. One of those seats is earmarked for Lance Stroll because of his surname, and the other one goes to a star driver to lead the team, because to be quite frank, Lance Stroll does not have that ability, and for me, he's actually regressed as a driver in the last 18 months or so. Sebastian Vettel was that guy. They definitely would have wanted him to continue for at least one more year, I would have hoped probably three. With the amount of work this project's going to need, there are no star drivers on the grid that would want to move to Aston Martin in their current circumstances. You've said Pierre Gasly. I understand why you'd want to leave Red Bull at this point. I understand why you want to leave AlphaTauri because the ATO three is terrible. But the AMR twenty two is even worse, and there's nothing to suggest in the next six months or so that Aston Martin are going to develop a car that's going to rocket up the Formula One grid. I'd have more hope in Williams designing a car that's better than Aston Martin next year than Aston Martin improving up the grid. So I wouldn't. I don't. I don't think Gasly would particularly want it. Ricardo always an option, but not this year. He's got a contract at McLaren next year. It's going to be highly paid. Why would you ever leave that unless he went complete mercenary at Aston Martin? And why would Aston Martin do that in light of how disappointing Ricardo himself has been in the last 18 months? So that move, although it although it frees up a seat to the competitive team, which I would like, I don't see it happening. Rookie-wise, you throw all these names at it that that Nico Hülkenberg, they're not going to promote to a full-time seat. I think I've been pretty clear. He's a replacement driver. He's had his chance in Formula One. And if you're running that, that star stroll structure, Nico Hülkenberg definitely isn't a star anymore. The only thing I would say on the rookies genuinely is that this absolutely guarantees that Oscar Piastri will be on the Formula One grid next year. Not necessarily at Aston Martin, but the fear in the last couple of weeks is with Logan Sargent's rise up through the Formula Two, uh, Formula Two standings, his feature race win uh, in Austria, his, you know, his, his serious progress up to very recently second in the championship, the chance that he wins it, Williams could well promote him as their own driver over Oscar Piastri which of course keeps Piastri off the grid. Now that there's another seat available, and as I've already said, a dearth of drivers that would really fit with it, I think it's all but certain now that Piastri is a driver next year. But I could not guarantee it would be Aston Martin.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a big question right now because obviously Aston Martin, this may fundamentally change the way they run the team as well. But there's no there's no star driver option that Aston Martin can take because they're already locked down in contracts at the top teams in Formula 1. Why would you know, someone like Sergio Perez wants to go back there? Why would Carlos Sainz, even if they're number twos within big teams, why would they be tempted to go to Aston Martin? So fundamentally, I think this is a, a going to be a difficult seat for them to fill. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if Piastri ended up there. It wouldn't surprise me somewhat if Logan Sargent ended up there. But again, there's a lot of questions. I would say right now, if I was going to fill that seat, I think Nick De Vries, because of his links to Mercedes, I think stands a really good chance. And Aston Martin could use this as an opportunity to deepen those links a bit more. I think Piastri does stand a good chance simply to ensure he ends up on the grid next year. But I do think there's risks in both drivers going up against Lance Stroll. But there's no other star driver that I think Aston Martin are fundamentally going to have to change the model of how they run the team. And yeah, Vettel retiring fundamentally for them is not a good scenario whatsoever because losing the knowledge and losing all of the input that Sebastian has in developing that car, especially given how the project's not lived up to expectations so far, you know, there's no doubt that De and Piastri are talented drivers, but they're not going to bring the same amount of knowledge and the same amount of development talent that Sebastian Vettel will. So fundamentally, the biggest loser out of this retirement is Aston Martin, and I think next season could be a very, very difficult one for them indeed. Well, we'll be talking more about Sebastian Vettel and his Formula One career and his legacy later on throughout the summer break. So keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, though, we need to go back to the French Grand Prix. And I guess there is only one place to start with the Claire's the Castellet Calamity. That's coming up next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Okay, let's get on to last weekend's race at Le Castelay now, at the Circuit Paul Ricard. And let's start off with lap 19. Um, the turning point, perhaps, not just in the race, but the last death knell, perhaps, in Charles Leclerc's championship chances. Um, coming out um, of the Mistral straight um, into the Bosé, Charles Leclerc, with Verstappen having pitted and seeking to use the undercut to overtake Leclerc, going into the Bosé, um, Leclerc spins off the track into the wall not the strongest of touches but struggling with the throttle pedal unable to get the car away the Claire retires there on the spot giving Verstappen the lead of the race which of course he then takes to take a 63 point lead in the championship it's more than two race wins now ahead of the Claire with only nine races left to go in the championship um Joe there's 225 points left Oh, sorry, 234 points left with fastest lap, even. Verstappen leads the now by 63 points. He could have gone in to the Hungaro wing with half as much of a lead had the not retired from the race. Um, I think it's fair to say, Joe, it's going to take a monumental effort from the Clare and some quite substantial catastrophes from Verstappen for this championship to go anywhere but again to Max Verstappen this season.
1: It's going to take, in addition to those two very unlikely events, it's going to take Ferrari out developing Red Bull in the second half of the season. And to be quite frank, I don't see that happening. I'm prepared to declare it now, as I have done on other podcasts. This Drivers' Championship is absolutely over at this point. People say, oh, it's a simple little mistake. You can't be too harsh on him. The salient point is that Charles Leclerc makes those mistakes. Max Verstappen just doesn't you can't expect on the in the form he's in in a season where he has been even better than 2021 i cannot see max verstappen doing anything like that and giving away points on such a large scale with such a small incident max verstappen is going to be the drivers champion this year if there's going to be a fight it's going to be in the constructors i still think ferrari have some chance but again it's contingent on them out developing red bull and the cars not being combustible two very big asks that Ferrari have not delivered on so far this year. But on this weekend, I know Ferrari have screwed up a lot this year. They've cost Leclerc an awful lot of points to so all the people on Twitter saying that that incident was some kind of conspiracy theory with the Ferrari. That's a hundred percent on Charles Leclerc. And he knew it himself.
0: Yeah. Charles Leclerc is, I think certainly quite vocal um, frustration at that crash. I think there's no doubt about where the blame lies there. And it's an interesting one, this because you talk about the Claire and mistakes and, We've spoken so many times about mistakes that Charles Leclerc has made when he's put himself in prime positions and he has almost everything at his feet and he makes these mistakes and throws away good results. And that's not just a thing of this year as well. You go back to 2019, Leclerc binning the car in the wall in Azerbaijan, costing himself a chance of potentially pole position and a chance of victory there. Um, Leclerc in Monaco last year putting the car in the wall in Q3. And then not fixing a clutch problem, which meant he wasn't able to take the start of the grid. Um, you've then got the Claire this year in Imola, again, spinning the car into the wall and throwing away a podium in pursuit of the fastest lap. And now, of course, the Claire in Paul car, probably the biggest and most costly mistake of his career so far. And it's these mistakes we talk about Charles de Claire as a future world champion, but it's these mistakes that we were seeing Max Verstappen making time and time again before he ironed them out and became this ultra-consistent driver that we see now as dominating Formula 1. Would you say for Charles Leclerc, if he's ever going to become world champion, he needs to get rid of these mistakes and get out of them
1: fast? It's the number one priority of what he needs to fix because on so many occasions this year we've seen how incredible he is over the course of one lap. We've seen how he can legitimately out-battle Max Verstappen in a way that even Lewis Hamilton could not do last year. We've seen his racing IQ, which has developed an awful lot, versus last year. A load of people saying that Carlos Sainz had it in spades. On evidence this year, in terms of awareness and racecraft, you'd have to say that Charles Leclerc has the advantage of the two Ferrari drivers. But the crashes are the one thing that remains. It is the number one most important thing for him to iron out. And I know Leclerc is younger than Verstappen. He's had slightly less time in the sports. But if you compare their experience in terms of years, Leclerc is at the stage that Verstappen was at sort of mid-2019 in experience. Mid-2019, Verstappen was already one of, if not the best drivers on the Formula One grid in performance every weekend. Leclerc absolutely has to fix these crashes as a as a point of absolute priority. He's not going to win the championship this year, but only he can sort this out ahead of a championship challenge next year, assuming Mercedes don't get their act together.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the thing. This season was a real chance for Leclerc with Mercedes not being on the pace and the new regulations as well, and Ferrari seemingly getting their head together and getting out a the result there. It's not been good for the Claire and obviously being so far behind now with so few points left. it certainly does seem that the championship is over for him and I guess for Verstappen, let's move on to him quickly. Again, a race where Verstappen was always hanging with the Claire, always looking like he was not too far away from making that decisive move into the lead. Of course taking the undercut, putting the Claire perhaps under pressure there and maybe motivating that mistake knowing he had to get that time out knowing as well how historically powerful the undercut has been at Paul Ricard as well. But again, for Verstappen, he didn't put a foot wrong in this race. And certainly once he got into the lead, he was fully in control and never looked like being beaten.
1: 100%. And he completely annihilated Sergio Perez over the course of this weekend as well. So even if Perez was closer in the championship, I wouldn't say there's a championship fight on there. It's just completely dead. It's Verstappen's deal with it this is going to take some absolutely monumental catastrophes for him to lose it at this point. He was actually ahead of Leclerc as well when Leclerc made the crash, not on the road, but in terms of net race position. If Leclerc had come into the pits at the end of that lap, he would have come out behind Max Verstappen. Now, maybe Ferrari were trying to force a one-stop strategy, which is always pretty risky at Paul Ricard. Red Bull were going for the safer two-stop. Whatever the case, Leclerc is going to have to get past Max Verstappen on track which despite how good his defending was he had not done up until that point and we know how good Verstappen is around here when he's in a leading position so yeah i i i wouldn't be i wouldn't be certain that leclerc would have gone on to win that race anyway but even if it's just 18 points thrown away versus 25 it's still the absolute death knell in a world championship that quite frankly max verstappen deserves
0: yeah and i think as well given just how many points verstappen has been accumulating throughout the season as well Even on days where the Claire's just, you know, coming home in second, the fact that Verstappen has so consistently been quick and when he's had these opportunities to take results, it's not like with the Claire, where the Claire's been making these mistakes and he's been, you know, put and as well been put in bad positions by the team as well, which haven't allowed him to maximise results. When Verstappen's had an opportunity to maximise results, nine times out of 10, he does it and wins the race. That's why he's run seven out of 12 Grand Prix this season. That's why he's so much further ahead in the championship compared to every other driver on the grid. And again, a really strong performance from Verstappen at Paul Ricard. And you said certainly far ahead of Leclerc, certainly far ahead of um, Sergio Perez and Carlos Sainz as well. Um, I don't think there's really too much more you can say on that point up from Verstappen. Um Let's talk about a couple of other tariffs quickly. Firstly, Mercedes, um, double podium for Mercedes in poor a car. Um, one of the best weekends, probably the best weekend we've seen from them in some time, qualifying well, getting the cars into fourth and sixth. But then in the race, Lewis Hamilton looking totally assured, very composed, pretty much looking nailed on for a podium, even without Charles Leclerc's retirement. And then George Russell as well, really showing... I think some very strong racecraft against Sergio Perez and Carlos Sainz and really showing that when Mercedes get that, their act together, that car is going to be very difficult and that driver partnership is going to be lethal for Mercedes
1: every weekend this year, Mercedes have been better in race trim than they have been in qualifying as a, as a general average. So it was hardly surprising uh, for Mercedes to make good progress, especially in the latter stages. Although Russell's pass on Perez has absolutely nothing to do with car pace or driver skill. That's just a, a freak event. Um, i I I would actually hesitate to say that Russell was particularly deserving of a podium this weekend relative to other drivers on the grid. But it's particularly embarrassing for me because I, of course, said last week that no Mercedes would finish in the top five at Paul Ricard. So for them to get their first double podium of the year was fairly embarrassing in in terms of the scale of how wrong my predictions were. But um, yeah, I also said before the stream started, of the four races at Paul Ricard, Lewis Hamilton's worst finish... Is second place. Mm. It's pretty crazy good form considering that this year he's got the third fastest car.
0: And let's just stick with that form of Lewis Hamilton quickly because this is, we were talking so much at the start of the season about, you know, a decline in form for Lewis Hamilton, a decline with the car, the car just not being there and Lewis Hamilton really struggling relative to George Russell. This is his fourth podium in a row now and his best result of the season in second place. And Lewis Hamilton. With the upgrades that we've, of course, seen Mercedes bring, looks so much more comfortable than that car now. Looks not entirely like the Lewis Hamilton of old, but very much in that 2009-esque way. Perhaps you could say when the car is underneath him, he's starting to put in the performances and get that Mercedes into the positions he needs to be getting it into. And with George Russell as his teammate backing him up as well, Mercedes certainly look like, come the end of the season, if everything can stick together for them, they could start to cause a bit of a nightmare. Maybe you could say for Ferrari, if there's continued mistakes for Ferrari, maybe that second place may look, start to look slightly under threat, which of course a few races ago would have been absolutely crazy to say.
1: I would be hoping that a lot of Mercedes' focuses would be on next year's car as opposed to this one. And I emphasize next year's car because I want it to be completely different to this year's. I have said it before, I do not think the W13 is a platform for victory going forward. You're not going to win next year with an effective W13B that maintains most of the same aerodynamic and chassis elements. So I'm hoping that the focus is on a new car for next year rather than iteration but I still don't think it's out of the realms of possibility that Mercedes win at least one race this year. We may get into, um, we may get into that a little bit later on as well. But I, I, it's far from out of the realms of possibility, especially if Ferrari remain combustible, Perez remains off the pace, and Lewis remains in really good form. People have talked a lot about how good George Russell's been this year. Lewis kicked his ass at Paul Ricard. That mm. qualifying gap is inexcusable on George Russell's end. That's just how quick Lewis was in a car that, in real terms, was nowhere near Ferrari or Red Bull this weekend.
0: Indeed, it is interesting. Mercedes spent a lot of the weekend saying after qualifying, oh, we were bemused at why we were so slow. Yet, of course, getting that double podium as well, I think really shows that the progress Mercedes really are making in the races at the moment. And it's an interesting one as well. We were talking a lot earlier before the start of the scenes about where we'd imagine Lewis Hamilton to come. And we were saying, well, Mercedes would probably get the third fastest car company, by the end of the year, Lewis Hamilton would be mixing it in as the third fastest driver. And certainly with the pace, you could say the number twos at the moment as well with Sergio Perez and Carlos Sainz, not really looking that convincing in recent races. Of course, you could make the argument, of course, that um Carlos Sainz has been let down by strategy and for the Ferrari engine in particular. But certainly, if the number twos at these top teams aren't looking so strong, Mercedes, it seems, out of all of the top three teams, have both of their drivers performing at the maximum that they can get out of the car at the moment. And certainly, if you're looking for a team to move forward at the top of the moment, based certainly on what we saw in Paul Car, then Mercedes do seem like the team to be able to do that
1: more or less yes uh, they they're the ones with most to gain i would say because if a red bull are looking pretty convincing at the top of the constructors and for all ferrari's promise and their how good they are at turning as opposed to as opposed to their straight line speed it all comes down to the combustibility of the engines and for mercedes are the complete opposite of that of all the power units on the grid right now i would say mercedes on average is probably the weakest in terms of outright performance but you can't argue with the reliability when was the last time a Mercedes power unit failed in the middle of a race? Mercedes themselves have not had a single reliability DNF so far this year. That is insane in a new technical era.
0: And certainly when you think as well that all the points are given out on the Sunday and not on the Saturday, you know, it seems in many ways a smart move from Mercedes. Um, We'll come on to the W's and L's in a bit and we can talk a little bit more perhaps about some other drivers up and down the grid within that. But I just want to focus on one more fight quickly, the battle for fourth in the Constructors' Championship, which is certainly hotting up. And based upon what we saw at Paul Ricard, Alpine and McLaren very closely matched, but fundamentally, Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon coming home in 6th and 8th. Alonso, again, having a fantastic weekend in the Alpine, looking like he is totally on top of that car. And again, looking in some of the best form we've seen from Alonso since his Ferrari days. And certainly since the championship or the the championship challenging Ferrari days of Alonso is how good he's looking at the moment. Ocon, again, proving that ultra consistency that he's been showing in the Alpine this season. Again, Lando Norris doing well in qualifying. McLaren certainly looking like they had a good car with Norris in qualifying, but the race pace not as convincing for him. Norris falling to seventh. Daniel Ricciardo coming home behind in ninth as well. Um, It's looking like it's going to be quite a interesting fight for the rest of the season between alpine and mclaren but certainly leaving poor car it very much looks like advantage alpine both in terms of i'd say certainly race pace and certainly with a small edge i'd say in qualifying as well
1: it's not where mclaren would have wanted to be coming into this year challenging for fourth in the constructors versus alpine uh, shades of a couple of years ago where they only just managed to beat alpine at the final round but well, then Renault, but I I still think Alpine have the much faster car and it's a testament really to the team organization and the form of Lando Norris as to why McLaren are anywhere near them. I think Alfa Romeo, quite frankly, have a faster car than McLaren on most occasions. I don't know what went wrong at Paul Ricard. They both Alfa Romeos were absolutely nowhere. But the, the real question mark is, is that McLaren, obviously they have a very reliable, reliable engine package underneath them. And with the exception of the double stack in Canada, they don't tend to make major errors in terms of preparation or strategy. Alpine, yeah, they've got the faster car for me, but they cannot maintain it to save their lives. Alonso in Austria was a golden opportunity to score some good points, and they completely ruined it before the sprint race had even started with a reliability issue on the grid that from what I could tell really should have been spotted earlier so if if it comes down to that the, the only reason McLaren are anywhere near Alpine at the moment is what I've just said if McLaren end up beating Alpine with this car without significant upgrades to make them legitimately quicker then Alpine have seriously bottled this championship
0: hmm. this is a golden opportunity for Alpine and you said it's testament to the organization around Lando Norris but You know, Lando Norris, again, proving why he was so highly sought after at the start of 2021 and proving just how he made that McLaren car so good and how he was getting it up to challenge um, with both the second Red Bulls and the second Mercedes at the start of 2021, certainly proving that talent that he has in lesser machinery. It's one of those things I think good drivers always look better when they're outpacing poor machinery that they're driving. And Lando Norris, I think, certainly proving that again this season um so much more to talk about from Paul Ricard we're going to give our W's and our L's next here on the Armchair F1 podcast well it's time now to close off the French Grand Prix weekend with our W's and our L's from the weekend and starting off with our W's and we've already touched on both of these a little bit so we're not going to go too much into them but Joe um I've gone with Mercedes as my W for the weekend, just for how fantastic they were in the race. You specifically picked Lewis Hamilton out.
1: Yeah, I didn't think George Russell was anywhere near what Lewis Hamilton put forward this weekend, neither in qualifying nor race pace. Um, and again, that the move on Sergio Perez after the VSC ended, that's really not driving skill from Russell. That's just his technical components working and Perez is not. So yeah, that, the, the, no skill involved in that. But Lewis Hamilton this weekend... On a track that we knew he was good at, granted, putting that much time on George Russell in qualifying, on Mr. Saturday, George Russell in qualifying, no less, is crazy. In the race, he made a really good start, never seemed to put a foot wrong, outraced Sergio Perez, who had a much faster car. And did the whole thing without a drinks bottle in searing hot heat. Europe's just Western Europe has just had a major heat wave. France was bloody hot last weekend. For Lewis to finish second in that car, around that track as well, with no hydration, was just insane. I, I think that people banging on about how great he was in Spain. I didn't think he was anywhere near driver of the day because Valtteri Bottas existed. This weekend for me, Lewis should have been the driver of the day over Carlos Sainz.
0: No, absolutely. Lewis Hamilton, I think, did not put a foot wrong in Paul Ricard. And, you know, as impressive as Verstappen was, Hamilton, considering the pace of that car as well, and the fact that Mercedes, yes, they're making improvements, but they're still the third fastest car, and very clearly that. This has been searingly good pace from both of them, and I think it's really exciting to see what perhaps they'll do coming forward in the rest of the season. I think there's no much more to say. It wasn't a weekend for anyone who had a particularly good Weekend. I mean, obviously, you could give a shout-out to Alex Albons getting his Williams into Q2, a shout-out to Yuki Tsunoda for getting his AlphaTauri into Q3, but then, of course, taking a massive L, spinning the car out on the first lap of the race. And I feel that's about it on that point. No one really, Mercedes aside, really staking their claim that weekend. But let's go on to some Ls now. And Joe, um, this is a very familiar L, but it was a pretty big one, and it was one that hurt Carlos Sainz in particularly. This weekend, um, Ferrari strategists took an even bigger L than I thought was possible at Paul Ricard. And it's weird because in qualifying, Ferrari pulled off, you know, without doubt, a very good bit of strategy, making sure that despite having engine penalties, Carlos Sainz got into Q3 solely for the purpose of giving Shoulder Claire a toe down the long Mistral straight. And then, of course, ensuring that Sainz was out the way going into the Bose, so he wasn't giving him dirty air going into the last bit of the lap. A very good strategic masterstroke from Ferrari. Helped Charles Leclerc get pole. And, you know, a very good move from them there. But then comes Sunday, the strategists at Ferrari just throw it away. Not only did they allow themselves to get outdone by or what we seemed potentially getting sort of outfoxed by Red Bull over the... Undercut a Paul Ricard, which we always know is powerful, we always know is a threat, and something very much that um, Charles Leclerc had he not crashed and come into the pit lane, see me finishing behind Max Verstappen. Seemingly, that would have been the case. So, not only did they do themselves badly there, but with Carlos Sainz, firstly, an unsafe release in the pit lane, which is the on the stupid list of F one penalties. Unsafe releases in the pit lane is like the top one. I, amongst the top ones for just sheer stupidity because it's so easy to avoid. But then letting Carlos Sainz drive past, get into third place on his hard tyres, get past Sergio Perez and George Russell and seemingly be in a position where he was going to finish on the podium and be rather secure in him to then pit the car to go for fastest lap, but go down to fifth and leave him far too much time to catch back up to Russell and, and to, and Perez fundamentally at the end of the day Ferrari strategist cost Carlos Sainz four points there
1: at the very least yes I don't think he would have gotten too much further because obviously the um the, the five second penalty only accounts for some of the deficit behind but yeah um they absolutely cost Carlos Sainz in terms of track position well road position if not necessarily an outright position and the points that go with them but yeah it was so funny watching this race with people who haven't watched Formula One for so long. It's like, oh, F- Ferrari's strategy has been really good this weekend. They're doing a really good job. <laughs> Just leave it a few more laps, guys. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they'll screw something up.
0: And I think what was so weird as well is that Carlos Sainz has been increasingly open in criticising Ferrari's strategies. We saw it at Silverstone when Ferrari told him to stay 10 car lengths behind the Claire to give him breathing space on all tyres. And Sainz being like, well, yes, I'm going to be at the front of a DRS train with Sergio Perez and Lewis Hamilton ravenous on soft tyres behind me, so what's what do I get from this? Why is this a good strategy? To then, of course, going into poorer car, and then again questioning the decision to pit him openly, openly on the team radio. You know, Ferrari strategists at the moment. You know, it's meme quality content, but they just. I think it's them just playing up to the meme because it's getting to the point of just being farcical now.
1: Have you seen the, uh, the comments about Sebastian Vettel's next job not being in the FIA, but being Ferrari's strategic director, <laughs> strategy <laughs> officer? And, it's, and the caption is always with, he previously filled this role between 2015 and 2020.
0: I mean, granted, Sebastian Vettel, to be fair, was again, in many ways, a victim of some for Ferrari strategic mistakes, but they, they haven't seemingly been, they weren't on the calamitous scale back then that they are now it almost seems like I can remember sort of going back even to like 2020 and just even then when they had the sixth fastest car strategic mistakes all the time and this is that thing we've been talking about you know with Red Bull even with with Mercedes still these are cars these are teams they're used to fighting recently for championships they've got a lot of the hunger but they've also got the, the knowledge the Ferrari don't really have at the moment they've not been in such a convincing championship fight certainly since 2017 and 2018 but then going far back to the start of the 2010s when they lost those championships and then into the 2000s so if there is a dearth of personnel who know how to do strategy at the moment i think we really are seeing that so yeah a ferrari strategist for i think potentially raising expectations and letting us down massively took a massive l at the french grand prix joe um Many other drivers and teams took quite significant Ls, you could say, at Paul Ricard. Um, Alfa Romeo looking quite significantly off the pace, um, being one team. But you have reserved your criticism for one driver in particular.
1: I mean, I had a really rubbish race in terms of my predictions about both Mercedes and Esteban Ocon going down the drain. Leclerc's championship basically being over. Guan Yu Zhou getting a reliability DNF again, because I really, really like him. Uh, But this hurts most of all. My L for this week at the French Grand Prix, no less, was Mr. Pierre Gasly at AlphaTauri. No stupid accident this weekend, no running other drivers off the road, no crashing into anyone. He was just slow at his home Grand Prix venue. Um, Look, I'm sure that Yuki Tsunoda would have screwed up something in the second half of his race. He's in absolutely terrible form. But you can only go by what you saw. And what I saw was Yuki Tsunoda getting a car that had no business being in Q3 into Q3 and starting pretty well. Pierre Gasly going out in the first round of qualifying at his home Grand Prix venue and never really making progress. It's another weekend where so many cars retired. Alpha Tauri should have been scoring points. The only reason they didn't this weekend was because Pierre Gasly was, for want of a better word, slow for the entire Grand Prix weekend. And this seems to
0: be a problem, I guess you could say, Gasly's had all season with the AlphaTauri. Tauri. The Alpha Tauri's just been off the pace, but he's not been putting in those performances that he was putting in in 2021, which stood him out considerably and were clearly him sort of outdoing what that car could do. We think back to a Baku, to Zandvoort, for example. There's no performances like that from Gasly this season, and he's not even doing what you could argue Sebastian Vettel, for example, has done, which is taking a relatively slow car and put it into places it doesn't deserve to be in race trim. So, yeah, this is certainly very worrying for Alpha Tauri. And at a time as well for Gasly, where he may have been looking to audition, perhaps for seats higher up the grid and more competitive machinery, he's certainly not doing himself any justice there whatsoever. Well, that is everything from Paul Ricard. And on a weekend, certainly, where it seems that the championship has been slowly moving away from Charles Leclerc, And from Ferrari, I think it's fair to say, going now to the Hungarian Grand Prix, all eyes will be on Ferrari. to whether they can mount a fight back or whether Verstappen will take an even bigger league, uh, uh, even bigger lead, even out of the Hungarian ring. We're going to be talking about that next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Well, we're moving on now to the Hungarian Grand Prix, to the Hungarian ring just on the outskirts of Budapest. And if Budapest is not already a great city for the fantastic nightlife and the wonderful sights that I got to experience interrailing a few years ago, the Hungarian ring certainly tops it off, no doubt. I remember, actually, when I was interrailing, I was in Budapest the same weekend that a Hungarian Grand Prix was taking place, and it was the race in 2019 where Hamilton and Verstappen were having a fight for the ages going into pretty much throughout the entire race. Of course, Hamilton doing pioneering then at the time the two-stop strategy to close down 20 seconds and overtake Max Verstappen before the end of the race. A fan, one of Lewis Hamilton's best career wins. I think a fantastic drive from him and from Verstappen as well to really hold off Lewis Hamilton throughout that race as well. Um, the Hungaro Ring is a brilliant track, Joe. Um, Monaco without the barriers but certainly one that always gives us good racing and always gives us despite how narrow it is plenty of great overtaking opportunities
1: you know it really shouldn't work as well as it does <laughs> slow average speed fairly narrow on a lot of and a lot of sectors a lot of long medium or slow speed fixed radius corners this track should not be good and yet it is, despite the fact that there's actually not a huge amount of overtaking that goes on. The salient point is, although overtaking is bloody difficult around the Hungaroring, ring, it is possible and you know, easily facilitated enough that doing a crazy strategy to try and gain, as opposed to hold on to what you have, makes sense. It's not like Monaco, where the number one priority is maintaining track position. At Hungary, it is gaining track position. We've seen this... E- When was the last time we had a classic race at the Hungar Ring? Uh, How about last year? We had an absolutely incredible strategic fight and comeback races from both Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen with very difficult circumstances, not to mention a crazy first and potentially only ever win for Esteban Ocon in the goddamn Alpine, first a na- first year running on that name. This is the track to throw up an unexpected winner. I think this was where Danny Kvyat got his first ever mm-hmm. F1 podium. Jensen Button got his first win after seeming to be in the sport for about 20 goddamn years um just just so many so many crazy races and stories around here and if there is any track on the formula 1 calendar that should be identified with a current driver it is the Hungara ring with lewis hamilton this is for me his best track even by comparison to like mm. the german races of the past this for me is his number one track that lewis hamilton nails
0: yeah and the thing with this track as well for lewis hamilton is that it's always one where even if he's having a year of difficult machinery It's always the one where he comes through and he gets some of his best results. You think of um, 2009 getting his first win of the season at the Hungara and getting his only win in the 2013 Mercedes in Hungary too. Um, Also 2011 didn't win that day. Probably should have done and probably would have done if it didn't start raining and Lewis Hamilton had creative interpretations of where you could drive Paul De Resta off the track. But Fundamentally, this is a track that Lewis Hamilton has always done really well at, and I don't know is there is what what it is about the Hungaro Ring that suits Lewis Hamilton. Obviously, it's not a track that is necessary. It's a very different track. You could argue to a track like Silverstone, for example, which is very much often about like you know high speeds and high downforce. But certainly, downforce plays a part here at the Hungaro Ring. I guess why do you think Lewis Hamilton does so well here? And what do you really need to nail a lap here
1: at the Hungary Ring? Well, Lewis is particularly great at w- over one lap pace, mm-hmm. seemingly everywhere, which obviously translates to a good qualifying position. But the thing with Hungary, it's not just about having the car set up beneath you, because so many of the because the DRS zone is particularly short, and a lot of the corners are quite tight on apex a lot of it's about positioning coming out of the previous corner and Lewis Hamilton's race craft and positioning has been top notch for almost his mm. entire career often the issue well the the the, re, the the catalyst for overtakes in Hungary it isn't so much having the faster car or better tires it's getting the better exit off the previous corner often as a result of positioning because the track itself isn't actually too too tough on tires so that that suits Lewis down to a T um, if you want a quick comment on track profile, which I think you were intimating towards, mm, yeah. crank the downforce up here. Straight line speed really isn't that big of a deal. You can hold on to positions just from out-cornering people, not necessarily from uh, making crazy moves in a straight line. This is one of the tracks where straight line speed is least important. Crank up the rear wings, crank up the ride height if you need to, soften the suspension just a little bit. Um, and yeah, you've you've got a car that can more or less slot car its way through the middle sector
0: unless we not forget as well um of course this was the track where Fernando Alonso put on some very inspired defensive driving against Lewis Hamilton last year this is a very it is very much in many ways a David versus Goliath track where if you get yourself into the right position as you were kind of saying Joe it's one where in so many ways driver skill here is so much more important than just having the car itself yes obviously You want a high downforce setup. Yes, you want things. Um, You want a car that goes well around corners. But so many of the key characteristics you mentioned here are down to driver skill. That's what we've seen with why Lewis Hamilton's done so well here. That's probably why we've seen some fantastic performances from so many drivers over the years who perhaps don't always get to do it on tracks that are so performance dependent, maybe a Spa or a Catalunya, for example. And let's go on to another thing, strategy. Strategy is always so important. At the hungary Ring. We've talked about so many races in the past where a the weather has played a part. It doesn't rain much in Hungary, but when it does, it always throws up quite a bit of surprise. But we've seen a lot of strategy and play an important part in races poor. You think back to 1998 for example, and Michael Schumacher um taking extra stop and using the pace there to his advantage. We mentioned 2019. Of course, as well with Hamilton and Verstappen and the way Mercedes used strategy there, and you know, so many times strategy is a crucial part of the Hungara Ring, and we've seen this weekend, interestingly, Pirelli bringing the C two, the C three, and the C four tires to Hungary. So not the three softest tires, which you could say would push people definitely towards a two stops, potentially a three stop strategy. Do you think though C two three C three C four will play into a lot of the dilemmas about whether drivers take um take a one or a two-stop
1: strategy here? <laughs> definitely, you'd have to look at some of Pirelli's estimates. But I was—I thought they'd go C1, C2, C3, but as yeah, they've they've brought the same compounds as they Mm. did at Pol Ricard, where tyre conservation was, as you could imagine, pretty damn important to Hungary, slightly less so. But the fact that there are just so many more laps and the track itself is shorter means that by its very nature, especially if you're in close combat, you need to be more cognizant of your tyre wear and how much load you're putting onto them. So I can, I can definitely see strategy being a bigger issue. Um, the pit lane itself isn't too long at Hungary. You certainly don't lose as much as you do at France, which means that the idea of going to a two-stop is slightly more appealing. The most important thing around here is having the best tyres you can in the last stint. I wouldn't say it's absolutely critical that you need to have the right tyres Dur- during the opening gambit of the race because at that point you can just you can hold on and chances are there are enough people behind you doing the same thing that you won't get absolutely swamped by the field the most important thing is that you nail the final stint be on the right aero settings have the right suspension and most importantly have the right tyres underneath you that's how Lewis managed to beat Max in 2019 um, and yeah I just remembered as well uh, this is where Heike Kovalainen got his one Formula 1 victory which I think is something absolutely has to be... If Heikki Kovalainen can win around here, truly anyone can.
0: (laughs) I mean, lest we not forget, though, that was, again, down to combustible Ferrari engines that day. It's a long-running theme in the history of Formula 1. And I guess looking at the track this weekend, and we talk a lot about who potentially could benefit, of course, Lewis Hamilton automatically someone who we will imagine will do very well here at the Hungarian. but i guess we've spoken a lot about sort of the ferrari versus red bull battle at the front of the grid but certainly looking at the profile of the track and provided neither engine can bus and Shell claire doesn't go making mistakes all the time you would say that this is a track that ferrari you'd expect to suit more than red bull
1: um most of it yes however getting off the final corner and of mm-hmm. course the run from turn one down to turn three red bull's acceleration out of slow corners is a really big deal it's something that hasn't gotten as much at- as much attention as it deserves because people are just too busy gushing about the overall top end speed of the red bull which they will not be able to use around here the acceleration's great i don't think this track suits ferrari as one-sidedly as a lot of people mm. say
0: and I think something interesting, you mentioned that acceleration there and so many of the overtakes are hungry Because again, DRS isn't the most powerful thing here. It's one of those tracks where I think DRS works as intended where it's not meant to complete the move, but it's meant to give you a far better opportunity to make the move. And you look obviously the two, I'd say two main, the two only overtaking points on the track really, um, going down into turn one and then coming out of turn one, that DRS zone down to the long sort of left hander or turn three. Again, that acceleration for Red Bull is going to be crucial because obviously if you're coming out of these, again, quite long sort of high-radius corners, you're coming out of that onto the pit straight and you're then going to have, um, again, for Red Bull, that acceleration plus DRS gives Verstappen and Perez an opportunity to certainly pull alongside a driver and make it harder for them and not give them the line that they were hoping for going into the braking zones. And even if they can't get past them down to Turn 1, I mean, we've seen some fantastic overtakes out of turn one. Drivers struggling to get traction out of the corner, a car far greater acceleration, far greater traction, then taking that really uh, that outside line into turn three. Which, again, given the radius to the corners, in some ways you're trying to make an overtake makes a lot more sense to do to give you a much better run going into turn into turn three and then down that long that sh- straight there before you get into the middle sector. So yeah, certainly I think the acceleration is going to play a big part there for Red Bull. But I guess for one lap pace, maybe I'd opt for Ferrari just through that middle sector. But again, it's going to be a really interesting one because the weather forecast for qualifying does say it's going to be wet. And when I say wet, biblical levels of rain, we understand are expected to fall. We're talking 80 to 90% chances of rain from the latest forecast that I've seen. And wet quality I mean the wet weather in Hungary can always throw up a surprise but wet qualifyings in particular given a how short the track is B how narrow it is and just the fact that you know it's so again so dependent upon drivers getting the lines out of the final court getting the positions right out of the corners but also getting that acceleration is one really challenging drivers in the wet to see how far they'll go you know this is a track that certainly could throw up quite a few surprises.
1: Definitely. And the knowledge that this is going to be a wet qualifying session has changed my predictions, which we'll get into in a couple of minutes quite significantly. Um, Yeah, for, for a track that's so low on the fun factor, it really, it really shouldn't throw up this level of entertainment and intrigue every single year.
0: Well, I am definitely excited for this weekend. It's going to be a really, really exciting one. Indeed, but we've got to get onto the predictions next. What are we thinking will take place at the Hungara Ring? That coming up next here on the Entre F1 podcast. Okay, let's get on to our predictions now. Firstly, though, we need to go back over our predictions for last weekend's race. And certainly, a quite, I think some quite interesting um, predictions, I think, from all of us there. Um Let's go on with a few. Firstly, um, our, starting off with our predictions, uh, Rory was the only one to predict Max Verstappen victory. So we do need to give him some credit there. Um, me and Joe both went for Charles Leclerc to win the race. (laughs) Um, Perez, again, we all predict, Perez, two of us predicted to get on the podium. Um, Verstappen, of course, me and Joe predicted to come in second, won the race. Um, Esteban Ocon was someone that Joe predicted to come third. Um, I'm not quite sure where you got that one from, Joe, but it was a inspired prediction, shall we say. But again, some interesting predictions as well. On me going no non-Mercedes, Mercedes power unit finishes, half the points of scores were Mercedes cars or Mercedes power cars, so not my best prediction ever. Um, Joe saying no Mercedes in the top five. Just move on, just move there on. There were two of them in the top three. And um, Rory going for three Ferrari power unit engine retirements, which you know wasn't entirely wasn't quite there, but it wasn't entirely far off. So I think no one was very convincing in their predictions. But I'm thinking for at least predicting a Verstappen victory, I'm going to give Rory half a point. I think for yeah. the French Grand Prix. I
1: think what's most important here isn't so much the half, uh, that, uh, that, that Rory gets half a point, it's that you and I get absolutely nothing, especially <laughs> me. That is the worst week of predictions I have
0: ever had. Well, let's see if once again we can reclaim our reputations at another race. Um, Joe, let's get going with qualifying. I've got now Rory's not here on the podcast this week, but I do have some predictions from him. So starting off, with qualifying, he's predicting a Max Verstappen pole around the Hungara Ring. I'm sticking true to 2022 form and predicting a Charles Leclerc pole, especially I think in the wet as well. Joe, who do you think is going to get pole this weekend?
1: For me, it all depends on whether or not the rain comes down, but I can't do a conditional prediction. I'm assuming that the weather forecast is right, always the dangerous thing to do in mainland Europe? Max Verstappen for pole because it's wet.
0: I mean, that is very true indeed. Verstappen's wet form has always been very good. I am just thinking hey, the one lap pace of the Ferrari, particularly through the middle sector as well, I think something that will particularly serve them well there. But I do think it'll be very close indeed. Um, Let's get on to the top three now. Um Rory has gone for a Verstappen victory from Charles de Clare with George Russell in third. Joe, what are you going to predict?
1: Uh, I wanted to hype it up somehow, but I do not have the words in my tired state. Lewis Hamilton will win the Hungarian Grand Prix of 2022. I've well, nothing more to yeah, say on that. He I, is...
0: I, I, I'm going with the exact same prediction there. It's not, a, I don't think he'll nest, the Mercedes qualifying pace isn't what's going to do it for them. No. I think he'll probably come either second or third on the grid, but A, his sheer brilliance around the track, B, the race pace of the Mercedes, but also I just think the fact that, you know, this is a track fundamentally Lewis Hamilton just manages to get a good performance out of. And I think if strategy plays a part here as well, Mercedes, for all the troubles they've had this season, have been very alert when it comes to strategy. And I think all of those three factors combined, I think that's what's going to get Lewis Hamilton the victory here.
1: And Red Bull are also not very good on tyre wear. So if Mm. we're running off the model where, for example, I've got Lewis Hamilton finishing second in a wet qualifying round here within four-tenths of max, I can 100% see a situation where Max goes off into the relative distance but absolutely shreds his tyres doing so uh, because Red Bull, they just don't seem to be able to... Mm. Even in clean air, Red Bull don't seem to be able to keep tyres going. That's how they lost Austria, really. So... And then, yeah, Lewis either understops or outstrategizes Max. So my podium, uh, Lewis wins, Max Verstappen second, Uh, Lando Norris third. Ooh, why why Norris? Because I think of all the weaknesses that the the McLaren package has, this is the track where they will be least affected. That car is very well aerodynamically developed. The chassis is pretty good as well. That's what matters around the Hungaroring. And again, Norris in the wet, exception of Russia, can be very quick. He's great in qualifying. And in, and in race trim, I can see him holding off much faster machinery.
0: No, definitely. And I think on a track where defensive driving really does get rewarded, I think this this will be a good weekend for Lando Norris. I have no doubt about that. And the upgrade package we saw Masa- uh, McLaren bring to Paul Ricard as well certainly improves that one lap pace quite a bit. Um, I think, yeah, Norris will have a good qualifying, I think. But for me, I think I'm, I'm going to say Lewis Hamilton to win. I've already mentioned that. I'm going to say that Charles Leclerc will, I think, it will be a tough top... It'll be, again, a great battle between all of the top three. Strategy is going to play a big part, but I think Leclerc is going to come in second and Verstappen in third. I can easily see a scenario where Lewis Hamilton is running a longer final stint and having to hold off Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen towards the end of the race. But I do think the, the skill that Lewis Hamilton has his dogged driving when he needs to be driving defensively. All of that, I think fundamentally, this will be a Lewis Hamilton victory, predominantly down to his skill as a driver more than anything else. And he's going to win the race with Declare in second and Max Verstappen in third. I do think it will be close, not just off the podium. I could easily see, I think, Carlos Sainz coming in fourth, Lando Norris coming in fifth, potentially. I think it's going to be very close there. But yeah, I'm going Hamilton, Declare and Verstappen. On the podium. Um, let's finish off now. Miscellaneous predictions. I'll start off with Rory's. Um, Rory has predicted a Mick Schumacher commemorative helmet to Sebastian Vettel um, this weekend, which I guess there's nothing on track, but you know, it's a cute little prediction. I'll give him that. I don't think it's going to win him anything, but you know, I can see the sentiment behind it. Um, I'm going to say, with a wet qualifying, I think there will be at least one Williams in Q3. I th- I can very, very easily see that. I can't tell whether it be, I mean, I'd probably say Alex Albon more likely than Nicholas Satifi, but seeing how well Latifi did in Silverstone, I wouldn't put it past him, especially as well given how the Hungara ring seems to be one of the Latifi's better tracks on the calendar thinking back to last year as well. Um, Joe, what is your miscellaneous prediction?
1: Every former world champion on the F1 grid scores points this weekend. So that's cool. Hamilton, Alonso, Verstappen, Vettel. I don't know if I'm missing anybody. I don't think I that am. That is
0: it. That is it.
1: I was going to go for like not many cars retiring, but if, if that is enough for a miscellaneous prediction, every former champion scores points this weekend. I, I, I... All of them are great around here.
0: I think that's that's a really spicy prediction indeed because you may have several really good rounds here as well. But, you know, it will take particularly... I can certainly see Verstappen-Hamilton definitely doing it, but certainly I think Alonso and certainly Vettel, it requires... Alonso wouldn't be surprising. It just require everything to come together for him whilst Vettel would need to outdrive most of the midfield. I think that's a really... It's an intriguing set of predictions. And I think to, to round off the start... Of The the first half of the season was as much ambition as we had in the first race of the season. I feel it does our predictions justice indeed. Um, Joe, anything else to add before the Hungarian
1: Grand Prix this weekend? I can't wait to see just how wrong we get it again (laughs) for Lewis Hamilton to qualify 14th and not to make any progress whatsoever come race day.
0: Do you know what? I'm going to be more optimistic. This is, lest we not forget, this is a track where this alongside Montreal are the tracks where Lewis Hamilton has tended to get his first race wins of more difficult seasons. So I'm excited for this track to be another one of them.
1: I've also just remembered, where did Jensen Button qualify when he got his famous first win around here? 14th place. It could (laughs) just happen.
0: This could be the day. I mean, it would require a Vitantonio Liuzzi um, parking bollard at some point during the race. But you know, I think I would definitely be up for seeing something like that. If it does mean, again, you know, Lewis Hamilton's lowest um, starting position in a race he's won, Joe.
1: Would that be Lewis Hamilton's lowest starting? No, Germany, 2019. Yeah, which was 14th. 14th. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the omens, the omens
0: are true this weekend. Lewis Hamilton qualifies in 14th place, wins the Hungarian Grand Prix by a canter. Well, that is it. For this week's episode, thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks again to Joe for coming on. Uh, we'll be back throughout the summer break looking over some of the biggest stories from the first half of the season. There's a lot to look forward to. So stick around, drop us a like and follow across social media at Armchair Pods. Until then, enjoy the Hungarian Grand Prix and we'll see you again soon.